Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 55 and we're going back to our picking over the bones format. But Rona's got news of a slight tweak we're making to it. Hey Sean, hello everyone, thank you for joining us. Yes, in our Picking Over the Bones episodes, we take four games and we go over them and we chat about them, we discuss everything to do with them and give you our opinions. Now usually we start with a big rules explanation, but Sean and I realise that that's probably the most boring part of any of the podcasts we do, so we're going to try and do away with it and try and integrate the rules explanation into our discussion. Are you confident it's going to be entertaining listening, Sean? I think it could be a big book of madness, Ronan. Oh, oh, oh. oh you're quite the card. Maybe oh. it'll be a bit of Marco po- That doesn't work. No, okay, so we hope you enjoy it. What we're looking for is some feedback. So Sean always lists where you can get hold of us, but come over on our BGG Guild or tweet us or whatever you want to do it and let us know what you think about how this gone. Did it make sense? Were you able to follow along? We know that most of our listeners are quite game literate, so you probably know a lot about these games. So spending 10 minutes telling you what you probably mostly already know. Well, we'll see how this goes, basically. Sean, you have two games for us. What are they? Well, Ronan, my two games are, as I alluded to earlier, The Big Book of Madness, and the second one is Porta Negra. Exciting business. Essen coming through. Mm-hmm. I've gone for The Voyages of Marco Polo and a remake and retheme of an older game, Res Publica. I also need to apologise because we're recording this. It's the second night of Diwali, the Festival of Light, and I live on the northern edge of one of Europe's biggest Asian communities, so you'll hear in the background of my recording sometimes fireworks because that's how it's being celebrated. So happy Diwali, everyone. Apologise if you hear some banging and popping. I can tell you the sight from my rear windows is amazing. It is just miles and miles of fireworks going off, but for recording a podcast, maybe not the handiest thing. I thought it was just what we were recording again. They were happy, Ronan. <laughs> yeah, episode 55. <laughs> <laughs> it does, honestly, it looks stunning. You can just look out the windows all across parts of West London and it's crazy. It's lovely. And, of course, as Ronan said before, I'm going to tell you where we can be found. We are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. You can go there for gaming podcasts of the very highest calibre and, of course, ourselves. And we're also on TD6.org. You can go there for audio, written, and visual gaming content. Well, we're going to kick off affairs with the big book of madness this comes from designer maxime aramborg and it's his first design well first design i've heard of certainly and it's published by yellow it plays two to five players with a suggested playing time of 60 to 90 minutes and i think that's probably about right it scales with the player count obviously so what is the big book of madness all about so harry potter fans Pack up your ears. Yes. (laughs) As Ronan likes to say, we are all wizards or something. And we are at college and we are learning about magic. But we get a little bit bored in our first year at college. And there's one thing we've been told not to do, and that's do not open the big book of madness. And what do we do? 
young scallywags that we are, we pop downstairs. We can't bear it anymore. We have to have a look and see what's in this big book of madness. And all hell is unleashed. Monsters and beings and ghouls and all sorts are released out into the world. Now... We have to get them back in to the Big Book of Madness. We have to trap them again. It's all about the cooperation involved in getting these monsters back into the book. So that is the theme of the game. So the first question I really got for you, the first thing I'd like to talk about, is about the theme and how important is the theme in this game? How does it drive the game? Well, in essence, as with most co-ops, the game is a puzzle. And this probably plays more puzzly than other games. Now, the key to it is each player on their turns are going to be playing spells. You have a limited spell book that you start with and you can upgrade it over time and purchase more spells. And those can be powered by element cards, which you start off with in your hand. And those elements are used to, to deal with curses, which we'll come on to, but, but deal with those spells. Now, the game is very puzzly, and yet... In all the plays I've played with, everyone has referred to the spells as spells. The different colours of elements, they could easily degrade into red and green and blue. They're not. They're referred to as air and earth and fire. So in terms of that part of it, do you feel like you're really battling monsters and putting them back in the book? I think to that degree it works. There are a couple of other issues I'm not sure thematically work that well, but what do you think generally, Sean? Do you feel like a young wizard battling these monsters? Yes and no. I mean, I think the game is is quite abstract, but that's why I actually think that that theme, and it's a very simple theme, takes a couple of moments to explain it, but it does drive everything. And you're absolutely right. We don't descend to red, blue, green, and beigey white, or whatever, that, whatever the air one is. Beigey white is definitely the easiest way of saying that. <laughs> you do absolutely call them by their names and that's it's it's because it's so simple and there is only the four elements there's nothing more to what you're thinking about is other than putting together these four elements and the story in itself just binds that all together really nicely and because of harry potter i think everyone's already got that sort of thing in their mind that you're young wizards at a wizard school that's 100% correct. I absolutely agree with that, that you can just say, this is Harry Potter, we've gone in the library, we've opened a book, and it's all gone wrong. And immediately everyone goes, cool. Yeah? Yeah. We know what we're doing. It's it's so, you know, culturally omnipresent. Everyone knows then what you're doing. I'm going to say a couple of things, I think, that break down the theme. I don't know if you agree with me or not. One of them is, now, the whole idea that, that mayhem's breaking loose and you're all doing your best and you're all trying to force these monsters back by destroying these curses... What feels slightly strange to me that it is played in a very routine turn order in that it will be the first players go, then the second players go, then the third players go, and so on. That, for the sort of chaotic nature of what you're trying to do, for me, breaks down the theme somewhat. Now, much more so than almost any other game I've played, other players get involved on your turn. It's actually the structure of it that I find strange that, well, this monster's coming out, we need to deal with it now, that player over there can do something, but it's not your go. And because the time rolls on, you're under a time pressure all the time to deal with the monsters, but you're restricted because it's not your turn, that slightly breaks the theme for me, Sean. 
it breaks the theme, but I think at some stage, game designers have got to think about the actual design of the game and the mechanisms in the game. I think if it was a free-for-all, I know it's supposed to be the big book of madness, but I think it would get too chaotic. I think there'd be too much going on. There'd be too much people saying, oh, well, I can do this. If you've got that focal point of it's this player's turn, you can talk to them rather than everyone chatting across the table. I think that controls a lot of the, the lunacy that could go on. I think you're correct. I think definitely when we get mechanically, we're going to talk about the whole co-op and, and how it works with the co-op. It's definitely very interesting. But in terms of just thematically, I was thinking some sort of time system whereby everything you do takes a certain amount of time and somehow as a group, you have to control that and manage it. And once you've used up a certain amount of time, that's it. The next curse kicks in. I'm not. I'm no game designer. It was just an idea I had. It's something I think would definitely appeal to a lot of people. You know me, I get nervous under such conditions. I start stressing. I, start I, stressing. I don't mean a real-time game. <laughs> I mean like an, an allocation, like this spell costs two time to allow you to oh, right, right. two time. Yeah, an actual a time as a resource as opposed to actual real-time Sean breaking out and tears in the corner needing a cuddle. <laughs> Into the fetal position. Uh, <laughs> that could absolutely work. That could absolutely work. I think we're trying to fix something that isn't that broken. Just an idea. Just an idea. <laughs> Let's move on to the next thing. What else do you want to talk about? So, obviously, I always like to talk about my artwork and my components thrown in. And this is one of the games that walking the, the Essen Halls really stands out. Because you've got these big posters. But you can have as many big posters if you like. But if the artwork isn't of a certain standard, then you're just going to walk past them. This is fantastic to my eye. I think the artwork and the colours, they're rich and inviting and i just think it's a really beautiful looking game it does look great each of the player characters you can be the the, the artwork is outstanding the monster artwork is outstanding the cards are clear everything works perfectly well i would say the cursed cards are functional as opposed to beautiful that's about the only thing i can say the rest of it, it it all looks good so, Roland, you mentioned there about player characters. Now, just to elaborate a bit more, each player is going to get given a specific player character from a choice of eight. Now, each of them has a specific power that they've got that is just a one-off thing that they can do that nobody else can do. And they also specialise slightly in one or two of the elements. So you might have someone that's really good at earth and fire. How important is good use of what you're given to start with with these with these guys, Ronan? And do you think the player powers make that much of a difference? I think some of them are quite handy, but lots of them are situational. I think some of them are great if you play with a certain number of players. There's a mechanism within the game in which element cards can be put into support and then players on their turn can use any of the cards in support around the board. So you're kind of banking things for other players to play and playing combination from their hand to trigger spells and what have you. And one player allows you to have four instead of three in support. Now, a certain player counts, you just can't get cards into support very well. So having four slots is almost useless. Other powers, like one of the guys can use a level one air card as any element. That's fantastically useful, no matter how people you're playing with. So situational, they're not all equally good. And in terms of the element balance, it's strange. Unless you have an element in which you have virtually no cards, 
you're going to start balancing your deck yourself because one of the things you can do in the game is spend a couple of elements cards to buy a powered up element card so spend two level one ones to buy a level two one or spend a level two and a one to buy a level three element so in this way you're deck building you're improving your deck you're getting more powerful element cards out all the time but it's you that drives that and you're completely in control of where your deck goes and very quickly where you started from is much less important to where you've gone to so the player character powers themselves i didn't think they were that vital no i didn't think they were vital but i thought they just sat in a comfortable spot in the game i thought they added a little bit to the game that it made you look at your card and think oh hang on i can do this now or aim towards something like he's the guy that allows you to take uh, six spells now spells are one of the ways and probably the main way that you're going to combat these monsters the spells are going to allow you to do a a variety of things like for instance you you can thin your deck with the fire spells the air spells you can bring other players into play even when it's not their turn earth allows you to cycle through your deck a lot quicker so these spells are sitting in front of you there's one guy that has six spells in front of him so it's a little bit of a help but it's, it's not overwhelming. If you forget to do it, it's not going to ruin the game. But I thought it was just just enough. I didn't get the very slight specialization that these guys start with. I found maybe in a two-player game, it's easy to say, well, you take two elements and I take two elements. But higher player counts, definitely, it's like everyone's going to balance their deck. You get to stages where nobody has anything. So you've got no fire or no earth. And someone's like, who collected earth? Well, I didn't want to because, oh, we better get Earth. So we all get Earth. and then The thing with that, though, in, in specialising is that as much as you need cards of an element to upgrade and buy better cards, also, every time you defeat a curse, you're allowed to take a level two element card of any power. That removes the need for specialisation because even if I start with no water cards, so I can't really upgrade very easily. If I just say, okay, I've beaten this curse, I'll take a level two water card and then do it again the next time. Suddenly, I've got lots of water. And then that water coming out means I can upgrade to better water. And suddenly now I'm good at that. So the game doesn't guide you too much. It's very open in how you want to build your deck. Yeah, it, it is. It is. You've got lots of ways to get things into your hand. But just before we wrap up on the look of the game, Ronan, how did you feel about the actual theatre of the book itself? I was in two minds. There was the part of it I loved, but part of it I didn't. But I'd let you talk first. There are five turns in a round, and after that round, you're going to turn over to a new monster each time, whether you defeated the previous monster or not. Each of those monsters have an entry power. That, I think, is the most thematic part of it. So you have sort of like a genie who comes in and confuses things or a fire-breathing dragon who comes in and wipes all cards out of support. And they tend to be the thematic part. After that, in terms of dealing with the monsters, at the beginning of the game, the monsters are going to have a set of curses. They'll all be of one different element. So you might get air, earth, water, or you might get fire, water, air, or whatever it might be. And later on, you start to get multi-curses. I didn't really feel the link between what I had to do to defeat the monster and what the monster actually was. So entry power thematic, after that, not really. Yeah, I love the theatre of the, the page turning and you're seeing what you're facing next and there actually being a book of madness. I love that. Fantastic. And it sits on a little lectern and you turn the pages as each monster comes absolutely fantastic yeah i I get what you mean about the entrance power fair enough but no flavor text no nothing not saying this is the big dragon water guy and he's attacking you nothing just you know that some people just don't need that yeah but some people do (laughs) 
<laughs> when I heard Lloyd complaining about it, I thought, well. Hey. <laughs> there's something gone wrong there. <laughs> Mr. Anti-Flavor over there. So, yeah, just a little bit of flavor text. And then, as you said, the curses that come out, if they're a bit more linked to the... the it just doesn't matter what the monster is. No, it Once doesn't. you get into the, the actual play and through those five rounds where you have to deal with the curses, it just doesn't matter. You look at the, what the monster is, but then you're looking at the elements, and that's really all you're looking at is those what elements are coming out and have I got the cards to defeat that. So very last about the components, Ronan. There's one thing I, I absolutely would hate. You know what that is? I would Shut up. I would hate. Go away. I would hate to have got drunk in Essen and lo- lose that first player marker. I don't know what sort of an idiot would behave like that. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Let's talk about the choices that each player faces on their turn. Ren, what are the options available to each player on the turn? So we mentioned you're going to have five turns in each round to deal with the monster. And basically you beat the monster by dealing with all the curses. If there's any curses left that you haven't dealt with, then you're going to lose to that monster. So what you can actually do on your turn amounts to, you can deal with a curse. For the first turn, you're not going to face any. But as soon as you go to the second turn of a round, if you haven't dealt with that first curse, it's going to come into effect and it's going to do something negative to the group as a whole, including, we haven't talked about this yet, but giving madness which is one of the main ways to lose the game what you can do is deal with curses and generally what they are is if they're of one element you need to hand in a power of four overall to deal with it so if there's an earth curse if you can play four earth cards total so it'd be a three and a one two twos wherever it might be that curse is going to get dismissed now you can play it yourself out of your hand or you can use the support cards we discussed earlier. So if someone has a level 2 Earth card in support, and I've got two in my hand, I can play all of those. They retain their two card, but it's been played. It goes out of support now, and the Earth Curse is dismissed. And I get that bonus and take a a 2 power card of any element into my discard pile. The second thing you do is build up your deck, as we mentioned. You can pay and get better element cards. Third thing you can do is upgrade your spell book. There are advanced spells available of the four different elements, a level one, two, and three spell of each, and you have to buy the level one before you can buy the level two. But anyone can buy the next one down once it's been purchased. Go into your spell book, you can have a maximum of five spells unless you're that special character Sean mentioned. And of course, the last thing is trigger your spells. Now, you get basic spells which allow you to draw more cards, that allow you to put cards into support, as Sean said, to burn cards out of your deck. Usually the madness cards, as we said, because if you end up with a handful of six, madness cards which you gain from monsters effects you're going to be out of the game and there's a limited madness deck and if that runs out the whole team has lost the game and the most interesting one Sean and I think the one that really leads to all those discussions around the table and really drives the game a vital spell is telepathy it's an air spell and the air spells generally are some version of this but it allows another player to take one or more actions depending on how much air you spend to trigger the spell that spell is the key to how a round goes because it means it's not just me making choices it's us as a team making choices as how best we deal with what's in front of us that's where the cooperation element really really comes in i think you've got the support cards and those air telepathy etc cards and without them i don't know how the game would really work i think they are the absolutely fundamental to working together is trying to get cards in support that you know people are going to be able to use and allowing people to take a turn in front of you because they're a better place to take something out in turn because you do get penalized when these curses hit and it ranges what happens to you but it can be really debilitating if you get on a run of just getting constantly hit by these curses, Ronan. 
Yeah, and those telepathy and similar spells, they lead to the big, long discussions, and they lead to the chains of actions, and they lead to the whole corroborative nature. Now, we're going to move on to the whole corroborative, because it's such a key to this. This is one of the most corroborative games I've ever played. But in terms of options, there are so many available, because any player can go on any other player's turn. That is one of the big selling points of the game. There is no fixed path. You can't optimise all the time. You need to look at what's available. You need to talk. You need to know what's in each other's hands. You need to know if someone else can do something to help the team move on. If you took away the cooperation for it, do you think there's much of a game there underneath? Do you think players actually do much on their turns? Well, sometimes no, and sometimes yes, sure, depending upon what cards they've drawn. It's quite possible that... If I've triggered you previously and you've spent most of your cards either into support or dismissing a curse on my turn, because you don't draw back up to six cards in your hand till the end of your turn, you can get to you and you've just got a level one card and two madness in your hand or something useless like that. And actually your whole turn is just passing and saying, no, there's nothing I can do, guys. Sorry. So I guess it can be a bit frustrating, especially in higher player counts. You can go on someone else's turn, but it doesn't feel like you're in control of that turn. You're just, all right, can you deal with that curse? Yes. Play your four fire, play my four fire, great. Now, you've waited for the turn to get around to you, and now I've got nothing to do. Now you've got to wait for that turn to get around another three or four players before you do anything. And that would be one of the slight issues I'd have with the game, in that sometimes you don't do enough on your own turn. I did have an idea, going back to my time idea, or maybe everyone draws a card or two cards every turn so that everyone has a chance of being in the game. You haven't got that chance of, well, the player to the left of me goes, he triggers me, I spend most of my cards dealing with something. He goes all the way around the table, I do nothing on my turn, it goes all around the table again. That was a massively frustrating part for me, is when you do get triggered to do it. And you have to do it because you can see it's actually, it's definitely for the good of the team. But you know you can have absolutely nothing to do for two rounds. There are spells that can give you cards back into your hand, but they are few and far between. And that's a definite issue for me with this game. Ronan, does the failure to beat each of the monsters impact on your overall chances? You don't lose the game until you lose the final, final battle against the final monster, and that's where it's decided. All the way through, you're building up your deck, you're building up your power, and you're facing other monsters. And if you keep losing against these guys, how does it affect you? Well, I think it's the same for the curses that you trigger and for the monsters you lose to. Sometimes you can pick and choose your battles, but you don't want to be losing every single time. There are curses or monsters that when you lose to them, they give you madness, and manners are dead cards in your hand. You can't discard them. They clog you up. Like I say, they are. They're certainly the main way we have lost the game is the madness deck running out. And therefore, you have to prioritise which curses you deal with. And you have to sometimes, if it's not going that well, prioritise which monsters you deal with. I mean, losing to a monster could be everyone burns their fire card. Or we had an interesting one, which was everyone burns the top card of their deck right after a curse that put a madness as the top card of everyone's deck. And everyone went, all right, leave that curse there. Let's burn this madness out of the game. And that's a little bit of the discussion. It feels a little bit funny. In the end, it is all about defeating that sixth and final monster. But what happens beforehand really does affect your chances That final battle, though, feels more key, possibly, than in other co-ops where it's much more of a cascading effect and pressure builds up during the game. This one is all or nothing at the end. You can get into that downward spiral. Yeah, definitely. In that when you're doing poorly, you get punished for it. 
but I don't think once you do go into a downward spiral, or I certainly haven't seen it, that there's there's much of a way back. It's very difficult to claw your way back. Once that man's that you realise suddenly it's low, and suddenly, oh, girl, we've got no leeway here. One bit that feels very mean and difficult sometimes is those entry powers. Like the dragon that nukes all cards and support. If you've been playing well and co-oping and getting cards and support and planning ahead, because you can see the three curses that can come up from the next monster on the back of the card as you turn over the page in the book. And suddenly it takes everything out. You think, oh, a whole planning ruined. And that's where sometimes I feel like the game can feel mean. Not unthematically. I'm not saying it's actually the bad part of the game, because you do want to feel a little bit beaten up by a co-op. But that can hurt. We've talked about the support cards and bringing other players in. How well do you think that support function in the game works and is it important and integral to the game? This is completely player count dependent, Sean. So the game plays from two to five, but they're very different games. When you have two players, you can very much plan together and and know most of what's coming up and the game's more under control and it's very much easier. And so there's the odd time when you can say, I need that card in support, but it's a one round planning thing. It's you stick that in support, I need it on my turn. I said this in support, you need it on your turn. So support is kind of more tactical. With three or four players, it's much more important because the game's going round and you will need cards in support to help you out. However, when you get to five, the game is so quick and so punishing and you have so many curses to deal with and each player only gets six turns to build their decks. You're much weaker than in like a two-player game. Everyone gets 15 turns to build their decks. You're much more powerful as a character. The support just goes out the window. You almost haven't got time to put cards into support. It's much more difficult to plan. It is a key element of the game, and yet it doesn't always manifest at every player count. Also, though, this actual function in the game is absolutely fundamental to everything i think if it wasn't there i don't think there'd be much of a game but yeah maybe it doesn't scale well with the players really like the fact that you can encourage people to put things out and to help you at a later stage and and we're all talking about what we've got in our hand and it that drives that as well it drives the conversation in the game what's great is because the cards have got multiple uses and you can say, well, yeah, can you put that two earth in support? We might need it later. You might need it later, but how about I can upgrade and buy another two with this, or I can buy that spell, or I can trigger this particular spell with it. Yeah, multi-use of cards. It's a great game mechanism. It's one of my favourites. That very much lends into the support thing, because it's almost a dead card until it gets used. So you need to be quite specific with, we're putting it in there to deal with that that's coming up. You also... Nobody needs to be sort of prompted into telling you what they've got because everyone's interested in like, I can do this and you can do that and I can support this and I can put this into... everyone should be interested. (laughs) Okay, okay. But 99% of the time, most people are there saying, yeah, this is what I've got. I can put this in support or I can use this spell. Brilliant. Love it. Love the table chat in this game. Okay, Ronan, what kind of people is this going to attract is this a game that people who are not familiar or even good at co-ops are they likely to enjoy this are they likely to succeed at it are they likely to see what we're getting excited about no okay thank you (laughs) (laughs) you just said that 99% of the time you've had people who are engaged and telling you what's in their hand and discussing the options that's how you must play 
You've been lucky if you have had 99% doing it. I, and, you know, uh, yeah, I have had a good hit rate of people really enjoying this. First of all, they have to understand how the game works. So being taught it well and seeing how a round goes is very important to be able to get on board and be part of the conversations. And you have to be between you looking at what spells are available because it's not just good enough to know what you can do in your turn. What is available to other people? what spells they can buy, what impact that will have, what spells that will mean they throw away so therefore they're no good at. Because of that limited spellbook size, it's very interesting that maybe I will have to throw away my water spell that allows me to put cards in support. So I can now no longer put cards in support. Well, how is that going to impact the group and have we got ways of mitigating that? All that is very interesting. It's not the simplest mechanical co-op although the theme does work in bringing that through but you need people to embrace the challenge enjoy co-ops want to talk want to be social and that's when it flourishes absolutely and in terms of people who maybe enjoy co-ops but are not that well schooled in them uh uh-huh, schooled uh, and this oh. game is tough and i just wouldn't recommend it to a new group that is, just is it out. tough Oh, I think it is. I think it is. Oh, well, maybe that'll be our next discussion. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, yeah, we will talk about where it's toughest, I think. <laughs> I think we've, we've spoiled that. Yeah, we kind of have a little bit. We've talked about it all through our discussion on the Big Book of Madness, Ronan. So let's put it out there. How well does this game scale to different player numbers? Awfully. Yes, agreed. <laughs> I'm all for the one-word answers. <laughs> terrible scaling. Absolutely terrible. The worst thing about the game two players is much easier even than a three player game they've covered that in the rule book there are harder variants there are three difficult levels as well to play these multi curses we've discussed as the game goes on through the rounds six rounds you get more of them coming out to make the game harder and you can play with those coming out originally and then there are other settings whereby you play with fewer madness cards or you start with a madness card in your deck so you can make the game harder okay that fine so you can find your own level of two player challenge it's not the end of the world I think three and four player is the sweet spot. Five player is just too hard. I said it earlier, you only get six turns each. You cannot build up your deck. You're fighting fire so quickly. The most awful thing is because there's five turns in a round, the same player is the start player every time. So they are under huge pressure because on their go, there's no curse, but there'll always be a curse on the next player's go. So they're under huge pressure to deal with that first curse. And that's all they spend their time doing. And what, generally ends up happening is they deal with a curse and when it comes around to their go again they've got no cards in their hand and they're not having a lot of fun does just five player needs something different done to it now i'm gonna move on and discuss that in a second first your thoughts on scaling sean what do you reckon oh exactly what you've just said we played the game with a table of seasoned gamers and some of these people were really good cooperative players and we played it once with five players and we got absolutely walloped. Absolutely walloped. So we all thought, oh, maybe we're taking it a bit lightly because there was a lot of laughing. And so we actually... And the theme and stuff. I think yeah. the theme leads you to think, oh, it's just a nice little yeah, Harry Potter yeah. co-op. But we got our game heads on for the second go. We really knuckled down, started thinking, now what can we do to make this easier to help ourselves? And we really worked well together, I thought. Maybe we didn't take enough madness out of our deck, but that was a slight flaw. We still got moosh. We went a little bit further, but we still got smooshed. Yeah, nowhere near getting the last round, no, even. No, Never mind defeating the last Absolutely round. And, and in that downward spiral as well. 
Yeah, it just everything that was come out, and it was just ridiculous. We lost the same way both games with the madness deck ran out. I've won it two player every time. I've won it three player. I haven't played four player yet, which was a bit. I think that's also a good player count. Just on what I can work out, five player, no, not even close, no chance. But I, I throw it to you, Sean. Five player is also ridiculously difficult in the legendary games, and it is the nature of the beast in that if you are playing a cooperative deck builder. The more players you have, the worse your deck is. If the game has got this ramping up of difficulty, it has to adjust that ramping up for the number of players. This doesn't, and Legendary doesn't, and they don't work with more players. And I think it is a design flaw. What I thought is, with four players, that what you get is, in the third turn of a round, two curses and trigger. In my mind, what I'd do is, I would make that third round actually a third and a fourth round. And with five players, I will put an extra go in before you get to the curses. So you kind of have round one and round two. And on the third round, you start triggering the curses. I haven't tried this yet. I'm just kind of throwing ideas out. But you have to do something. There needs to be a change. If you're doing a deck building co-op, you must mix it up for player numbers because it will not work across the board. Yeah, I don't know what it is with the designers of these games. That Do they think that having that extra player or extra players with a mediocre to poor deck makes up for three players or two players with strong decks? No, because you're still having the same amount of turns, but the decks are getting stronger and stronger and stronger at a rate that's much more than if you have a higher play count. You can't even really improve your deck because every card you have is going on fighting curses and then boom! Four more curses are out before you've even had one more go. Yeah, especially with this one. Can you get the wrong string of monsters or the wrong string of curses that come out that say just empty your deck, empty your deck, empty your deck? So you could have built up something and said, all right, get rid of all your sport function. Oh, brilliant. I had four fires out there. Thank you. It's all my fire gone. <laughs> so the only thing they do is they, they give you a five more madness cards per player. So it's 20 for two and 25, 30, 35. It's not nowhere near enough because you're taking more madness cards. If a curse says everyone gets a madness card, you're taking five instead of two. Having five extra cards is completely negated after two of those curses lost. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, for that specific one, I know you talked about a fix that you were thinking of. For that specific one, I just thought, keep the madness cards at two, and we decide who gets them, or something like that. Or the first player gets it, or the last player, the third player, just specify what players get the madness cards, rather than, because you're right, everyone gets five cards, those cards are gone in a flash. Okay, so you talked about legendary there ronan how does this game hold up to other cooperative games like pandemic is the one that springs to mind well i'm interested because pandemic is not the game i compare it to i think legendary series is probably the most obvious being a cooperative deck builder fairly similar less action fewer turns probably less thematic actually but i am a fan of legendary games but why would you compare it to pandemic sean before i probably mention a couple of others there's a specific reason because whenever I think of cooperative games, one of the first things that comes into my mind is Pandemic. It's one of the most famous, and obviously, with Pandemic Legacy come out, it's on everyone's lips at the moment. I'm playing this the other day, and I actually realized why I don't like Pandemic, and it's because it is completely cooperative. See, there's cooperative games like Arkham Horror, which I know relates, or the Castle Ravenloft series, and that kind of thing. But I think those games allow you the chance of personal journeys, or your own little 
personal bit of glory. But in this, it's all completely about the co-op. And I think if you're not completely invested in the theme and what you're trying to do, which I'm not with Pandemic, that's where it kind of falls down for me. And this one, I'm invested in the themes. We're thinking along similar lines here, actually, because what I've written down here is it's a bit more like Eldritch Horror in terms of you have your own player advancement, a slight levelling up sort of aspect to it. And you're dealing with the different monsters that come out in different ways. So I think we're knocking on the same boat. The other game I think it's most similar to, apart from Legendary, is probably Shadows Over Camelot. I know they've got the traitor mechanism, but not always. But that idea there where you're getting card combos and you're dealing together to deal with issues, be it attempting to put out sets of cards or pokans or whatever you're dealing with, all the different quests that are in Shadows Over Camelot. This is much quicker paced, but... I, I think that's the comparison I'd make. Cool, cool. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. I th- thank I you. I thought you were going to tell me off uh, for throwing in Arkham Horror there, but as soon as you've thrown in <laughs> Eldritch. All right, just during the better game. It's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. You say so, dear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we've pretty much covered everything that we can think I'm of. I'm glad we shaved time of our reviews yeah, by this new structure. Yeah. It's, not, it's not set up for us to witter on at all but anyway Ronan, <laughs> would you like to witter on some more with your final thoughts i'll do my final witterings on big book of madness now i have mentioned highs i've mentioned lows i have got differing conflicting opinions on this At the end of the day i really enjoy this game as it is of course i'll go back to it, it needs to be tweaked for player counts that's a shame however the multiple paths you can go down each turn. There are puzzles there and there are not obvious ways of dealing with them. That is the massive highlight. The more players you have, the more discussion there is, which is why I want them to fix it with more player count because it is more fun. People are all involved. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got a different way of doing things. At the end of the day, though, these are me my cards and I'm going to do them what I choose to do. Especially when you get the more advanced spells. You can see how they combo off each other. The spells you get are different in each game as well. The slight variation in them. The monsters are different. It's always a slightly different challenge. There's so much going on. If you get that fully engaged group who are following all the spells are aware of what threats are coming out, are going over those routes, it pulls you in. The theme makes it appealing to a real broad spectrum nowadays. We know that geeky culture is spread out, but not so much that everyone wants to be trolls and orcs and dwarves, but they do want to be Hermione and Ron and um, Dean Thomas or whoever you want to be. The artwork's lovely. It is fun. It is quick, it is thinky, and it is interactive. And I'm very positive about Big Book of Madness going forward. I am sure it's going to get many more plays. Well, for me, Ronan, I hate you because you pretty much covered everything I wanted to say about the game. So I'll just sum up really quick. It's got to be tough being my sidekick. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fantastically easy game to teach. It's a fantastically easy game to get people into as long as they don't hate Harry Potter. It looks amazing, although I'd hate to be without that first player token. Hate it. Hate it. I think it'd ruin the game for me. (sighs) Move on. (laughs) Just watching people around the table, and because we were obviously going to review this game, I took a moment to sit back when we were playing the other day with the five-player count, and everybody was just looking at the cards, talking trying to eke out the best possible way of doing things, but working 
completely in a cohesive team. Well, maybe not so cohesive because we lost, but as best as we could manage. And I think that's the best thing you can say about a cooperative game is that everyone wants to get involved. They must get involved. And there's no nudging and prodding people to get involved. I love it. Yeah, same as Roland. Definitely would like to see some improvements to the higher player count. That five-player count would be the best of all cooperative games is to get more people involved. It works well as a two very well three to four and i'm happy that it's in my collection and that's the big book of madness so the second game for this episode we're going to be discussing is the voyages of marco polo this was published this year, 2015. It is from designers Simone Luciani and Daniele Tassini. Now, those guys are most famous for having previously designed Zulking, a massive hit. They've also brought out Grand Hotel Austria this year at Essen, and the Voyage of Marco Polo was slightly earlier in the year. What's it all about? It is a worker placement game in which your workers are dice. At the beginning of the round, you're going to roll them, and then you're going to place them in various areas on the board, attempting to travel around from Europe across to Beijing and collect goods, camels to drive your travels, money to drive everything in the game, really, and fulfill contracts and building trading posts in various locations across the board. You're going to have five rounds to do this in. Most points at the end is going to win the game. So, Sean, the thing that will leap out first of all is this is not the first game to ever use dice as your workers. In this game, there's really only three things you can do with the dice. You can go to pick up stuff, be it money, camels, or the gold spices and silk, which are the commodities you're trading. You can pick up contracts to fulfill with those camels and goods in order to drive your game forward. Or you can go travelling across the board to establish your own trade routes. Within that, and having said there's only three things you can do, is there enough variety with what you can do within those limitations? Well, first off, Ronan, this game is short. It's over before you know it. Not short in playtime, though. No, you only get a certain amount of goes. There's only a certain amount of things you can do. But it's, it's gone because you've got five workers. You can bring new workers into your hand with black dice set aside and their additional workers. But on each go, there's so much you want to do, but so little you can do. So no, I don't feel limited at all because the turns are so short and the game feels so short in terms of what you want to do with it. If the game feels like it should be epic, like three or four hours, but you've only got that condensed period to do things in. So no, I don't feel that at all. It's trying to fit you in that 90-minute time frame and working over like all good Euros. You want to do lots of things, but you can't do them all. It gives you sort of a wide scope of things you can do, but only a limited amount of things to do them. Now, in terms of placing the dice, there are very limited spaces on the board to go to. At most of those spaces... Once a player's die is in there, if you wish to go there, you may place your die or dice, depending upon the space, on top of them, but you're going to have to pay to do so. And what you pay, it doesn't matter what their number is below, you can go a lower number on top of a higher number, but whatever dice you put on top is going to dictate how much you have to pay. Now, that cost of going top of another player's dice, Sean, and in fact avoiding it, how much did that drive your prioritisation of the actions? It, it doesn't, it doesn't. 
I think one thing that I noticed from uh, from that and from trying to get your workers down without having to pay too much is how important turn order is. It's one of the things I actually found quite frustrating about the game because it goes to the person who last travelled. In the game we last played, the person who last travelled was always the person with the most workers and he that was his game plan. And he was to my left. So every single turn, I was the last to play. So yeah, everywhere was nearly taken that I'd want to go. So I would always have to pay. I think if you're the first player, it brings a whole new perspective on the game because you're getting first dibs and you get to choose. And when the turn comes around to you again, you've still got quite a bit of the board available to you. Yeah, I can see your point, Sean. And I think it was quite unusual in that, and it was Puria, he, how he could get lots of dice when we were playing. He had an extra dice as part of his player power. And that certainly drove him onwards to take more dice and be able to manipulate that first player token. And, and you were unlucky being on his right-hand side. I think that is a good point. But that then brings me on to, you can purchase extra dice, these black dice, by spending camels. Now, camels are also used to travel across the board. You need to spend them each time you want to fulfill a contract, which is a way of scoring points and getting an income in money. Do you think it was worth spending the camels for more dice when, for most of the game, the spaces are limited? <laughs> I've played a few games of this, Ronan. Badly, but I've played them. You know what? Every game has been different. We've had games where nobody went near the black dice, so I didn't feel like I had to. I thought maybe occasionally as a luxury I I would spend the camels, but if I wanted to travel a lot, especially via the roads and not over water, then you're going to use a lot of your camels. So if I was trying to get to places, I don't really want to waste the camels on dice. But as we just talked about, Puria was taking a lot of the black dice, more goes as the flow on from that. So I felt I had to take those black dice. So in that particular game, yeah, absolutely. But in other games, not so much. Hopefully something of what we're going to get across to you is that each play is different and there are lots of different factors which are going to affect your strategy. And that's probably something I'm going to discuss as we go through all the time. How much does it affect your strategy? And in this case, one player's actions in trying to drive forward and take lots of actions meant you're right we suddenly all started scooping up black dice. Now, actually, to my detriment, because at one turn, I messed it up so badly, I bought a black dice for three camels and then used it back to get two camels back later on. And we almost, everything that other players do affect what you do. And there's different ways of travel, example, and racing to cities, and you're thinking, well, I need to get in ahead of them into that city to get that bonus. And suddenly it affects what you're doing each turn. It's incredible that a Euro like this can be that interactive and that varied. I'm just going to go back for one more point on the use of the dice. Now, in lots of dice games, rolling highest is what's going to win you the game. However, as we just mentioned, when you're laying higher value dice down on top of another player's dice taking the same actions as them, it's going to cost you more money. Was the balance of cost versus the benefit of high dice rolls worth it, or did just rolling high each time determine the victory of Marco Polo? The rolls do matter, because obviously if your strategy is you really need a lot of spice or you really need a lot of gold in this round and you're desperate to get it, then obviously you want to get the higher numbers and you want to get in there and you're not really bothered how much you pay because you need them. But... I also think there's a lot of merit in rolling low because you're going to pay less for everything. It depends on where your strategy is going. If you're getting lots of money in, and that's fine. If money is really tight for you, and money can be extremely tight in this game, 
especially if you're an idiot like me who takes off around the waterways and spending money to cross the ocean, then I'm not really interested in the higher numbers. I was using my higher numbers to offset the place beside the lower numbers so that I didn't have to pay a lot of money. It can be a determining factor, but also if somebody is going for the lower numbers, that can be a determining factor. Yeah, I think it's almost you have to react to your roll. You roll your five dice. If you rolled high, nipping in quickly and grabbing six camels with your six die roll is a good idea. Or there's an area on the board, the favour of the calm, which works if you play Alien Frontiers, like the ore there, whereby you must play equal to or higher than the dice that's been placed in there. If you can block that up with a high dice and annoy other people, then cool. But if it's your only high dice, say, for example, there's contracts, there's six available each turn. And if you want the sixth one in line, you must play a six down there because the value of your dice is equal to how far along that track you can choose or they do slide across and it is interesting in that you're mitigating which way you want oh gosh you know i could really do with a couple of low rolls here because i haven't got much money i'm only going to travel one space and how far you travel costs you more money to do more spaces and i like that sometimes you have to adjust your strategy to what you've rolled but it's still possible to make good moves and if you roll below 15 with your five dice you get a little mitigation in money and camels as well so the game's done a lot to take away the luck of that so we've touched on traveling there myself and yourself half of this board is a map and it's got various routes on there they are over land and they are through oasis and they're across the seas which always cost money to travel across and there are big cities and there are small cities on there which give you different types of actions you can do this suggests to you once you get it out and you start looking at it that traveling is the most important thing and when you start to play new players often emphasize the need to try and cover a lot of ground and get all around that map and get to all different cities it's not exactly like that when you play it out but how did you find the traveling mechanism and how did you find yourself differing how you prioritize your routes across that map well ronan i think as you know my uh prioritizing of routes wasn't the best in any of the games we've played together I had a eureka moment about <laughs> two-thirds of the way through the last game I played of this, when I just realised I'm losing all these games, and I am bad at this game. I've never finished higher than third. I'm losing all of these games, I think, because I'm not planning a very good route for the strategy that I am taking. So, as Ronan pointed out to me, I was trying to fulfil lots of contracts. He pointed out I probably should have been going through the middle of the land where there's lots of the smaller cities that give bonuses. They give you bonus camels, bonus spice, bonus gold and places to get more stuff. But I didn't. I went down round by the ocean and it took me ages to move anywhere and I just didn't plan my route according to the strategy that I took. It's hugely important that you match your plan for the game with your plan across the map. The absolute key if you want to travel in this you're going to talk about Porta Negra the key to selecting what you're doing it's not just throwing it down exactly the same voice as Marco Polo you should be selecting where you're going and why you're doing it the game incentivizes you to go to different places in different ways and we're going to chat about the incentivization now and there is a standard answer it depends what strategy it depends what you're doing but there are different things we're just going to touch on them so the first thing is everyone mostly there is one exception starts on the left hand corner in venice and they're traveling out from there and beijing is on the far side of the map and traveling is not easy in this game it is expensive it's tough i guess it's thematic in that way that you wouldn't be whizzing around on a 747 back in the 13th century getting to beijing though 
The first player to get there is going to score 10 bonus points, second player 7, and so on. And it also allows you to sell off goods at the end for a few points. Now, when you put a space and it looks like it's 10 points, people tend to rush towards Beijing and say, well, I need to get there to be successful. Sean, did you find that getting to Beijing for those points and those sale bonuses was worth it? Yes, I think so. I think this is a tight game. If you can in any way manage to take in Beijing as part of your route, I think it's probably a good thing to do. I think it's probably better off we ask you this, Rana, because you are the Marco Polo master. What do you think? <laughs> it's not going too far. I'm going to start getting smashed now. <laughs> I think you gave two different answers, and I agree with one of them. You said yes, and then you said, as long as it's part of your strategy. So I'm going to say no, unless it's part of your strategy. If going elsewhere is going to suit him with what you plan, Beijing is not worth that much. It's only 10 points in a game where you're looking for 70 or 80 points at least to win the game. The number of goods that if you've played well, you're going to sell at the end, and it's two goods for one point, and the contracts are much, much more beneficial than that. Beijing, I think, is a bit of a red herring. There are other places you need to think about, Sean. There are two different types of cities on the map. There are large cities and there are small cities. Now, you place... Uh, trading houses in both of them when you get there the first one the large cities first person get there gets a very small bonus but what it does is it opens up an action space to you these action spaces are come from a deck of cards and they're varied in every game but they will give you like the chance to hand in let's say spice and camels for a certain amount of points or yeah, place a dice on there to get a certain amount of gold which is the hardest resource to get hold of in the large cities only one dice can go there and you're very much prioritizing actions by going there the small cities when you go there they give you an income when you arrive and they then give you an ongoing income and that's going to be the likes of three points or three camels or five money each round combining those two together getting the access to the right action spaces and the right income to suit your strategy oh, i'm just going to spoil it vital as far as i'm concerned oh it absolutely is the small cities they're your economic engine it's not a big engine to be honest the quicker you can get them in the better again the importance of having extra spaces i've talked about puria just being to my left and he'd always been the start player in the last game if i'd have moved to more cities in that game then my options, again, wouldn't have been so limited. I wouldn't be having to pay money to do moves and do turns. I would be able to go to the cities that I'd visited on my journey if I'd planned my route a little bit better. It goes back to planning the route to get the right ones for what you're trying to do uh, is essential. Going on to that is another way the game incentivizes certain places you go to. Beginning of the game, you're going to get... In the advanced game, you get four bonus cards and you choose two of them. Now, what they do is they show two cities on each and those cities are never next to each other. They're going to be spread across the board. And depending on how spread out they are, you're going to get a certain number of bonus points for A, completing the both on one of the cards you get. And the second thing is of the two cards which you're allowed to keep, the number of those cities you end up with trading posting gives you another bonus. So there's plenty of points to be picked up there if you can get into all four cities on both your cards. But it's difficult to do so. And again, you probably have to pinpoint where you travel. Sean, how much was that driving you on and how successful were you in doing that? Well, in my first couple of games, I thought it was absolutely essential that I try to get to these locations. They can harvest a lot of bonus points. And you said in a game of sort of 70, 80 points that you're trying to amass, 
if they can give you sort of upwards of 20 points, that's a big chunk of your points at the end of the game. But is it worth going completely out of your way because you just want to go to these extra places? I don't think personally it is. At the end of the game, once you've got your economic engine and you've got the spaces that you need, maybe try to use as many camels or money as you can to get round to those. But I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. I think... What I'm getting at with all these different factors is it's up to you to decide how they best mesh together. And there are lots of factors which affect how you travel in the game. Getting contracts that don't give you money or you're in cities that don't give you money and you try and do that sea route, you're going to falter because that money has to come from somewhere. And what's interesting to me is getting all these factors together and working out what is worth going for. Sean said it straight away in the game. You don't have as much time as you want to have. You're not going to be able to go to all the places. You're not going to be able to score all your bonus cards and get to Beijing and get the actions you want and, and do all that. You have to prioritise. One of the other factors we talked about is contracts. Now, you start off with a contract, and all contract wants some camels and some combination of the three goods of gold, silk, and spices. And they're going to give you a variety of rewards. They might give you points. They might give you money. They might give you goods and camels back. They might give you access to a black dice. They might give you a random contract from a draw stack. There's all different things they give to you. But one of the most important things is at the end of the game, the player who completes most contracts is going to score seven points. Now, the seven points themselves might not be that important, but it definitely emphasizes the fact that completing contracts is good. But Sean, will the player who completes the most contracts always win? No, it, it falls down to the simple maths because there are contracts worth three and four and there are contracts worth nine. It's the contracts that make the difference. And that's another aspect of the game. You have to collect those contracts and you have to get to an actual action space on the board and choose the contracts that you want. And you can chain your contracts to work off of each other even it's always nice to have those seven bonus points to get the most contracts but it's what contracts you get and what they give you so let's talk about that training of contracts then it's gonna be based upon their rewards basically were you able to do it effectively because the contracts that come out each turn are random and getting access to them again is part of that dice placement it can be a race to get the contracts that look tastiest but different players emphasize different things on the contracts did you find it possible to set up an engine and start milking that engine of contracts to get goods to get dice to get contracts it was kind of luck of the draw if you weren't in the right place in the turn order or if you just didn't have the dice to spare to go and get contracts then maybe you weren't going to get the ones that are going to chain off and you're just going to rely on things there are also contracts that just give you a blind contract if you complete them so it doesn't always work but it can work and you can use contracts very much to your benefit the way i got out of the rut when i was stuck in the southern areas and i couldn't cross the ocean was by getting a move space that i didn't have to place my dice on the board to get that move action so that got me moving again everyone wants those free they are they are very very handy like gold dust but also if i knew i had another contract on my board that needed six or seven camels i was looking for those contracts that give you the camel bonus after you do it so there are things you can do but you are subject to the whims of luck and other players sometimes and do you reckon it's viable to just ignore the travelling on the board or limit your travelling and really try and hit the contracts hard and be the fat cat sitting in Venice reaping in the uh, rewards from other people's hard work? I haven't tried it and I haven't seen it. 
it. I think that hitting those smaller cities, especially, will help you with those contracts. So I think you're going to want to move to some degree. I don't think sitting in Venice is really an option, but I think maybe really reducing your travel so you just go to the cities that you want and you don't really think about hitting the bonus point areas that you need to collect yeah i think it does depend some degree on the draw of the cards and what action spaces are put in cities which are near venice if you get a couple of tasty actions in there the ones that give you lots of gold for example for your dice or let you trade in to get one of each of the different commodities and you can place a trading post in there and then start utilizing those actions i think you can really start hitting those contracts and get something clever going now there's something we haven't really talked about sean and it is what some people have described as the defining characteristic of the game at the beginning of the game depending upon how experienced people are you can do a draft or you get them handed out there are player powers and some reviews have said that this is mostly a game of how to use your own overpowered power versus every other player's overpowered power now the types of powers are talking about for example is you have one extra dice and the income of a contract each turn or we talked about you have to pay money in order to place your dice on top of another player's dice to take an action that's already been chosen this turn you don't have to pay that money or there's a merchant, there's an area on the board players go to to collect camels or spice or silk or gold. And every time someone goes there, you get some of that income, depending on player count. Also, there are other areas of the board they can get an income from when you go there. But you get an idea, they kind of sponge off other people's actions. They're taking this cut off the top. There's one that gets extra travel powers, they can travel between oases for free. There's ones that can lay down trading posts everywhere they move. Instead of, for most people, it's just where you finish, you put a trading post there. Whenever someone chooses one, and I've chosen one, I always feel like they've got a better one than me, Sean. These overpowered powers, are they the most important aspect of this game? They're obviously very powerful, and I do think that clever use of them is going to take you a long way in this game. But I don't think they're the defining characteristic of the game, that's for sure. I think there are some that probably are easier to use. Like the one I had, for instance, in my last game was I just got an extra resource every, one, every time someone visited the resource bank. Just. Just. <laughs> See, you say just, I say I wanted that. <laughs> but the one you got was that you didn't have to pay to go on top of anyone's dice. That one's obviously very tasty four players. That was a four player game that time we played. Yeah. When you play like two players, even three, it's not no, no. as. Good. But I mean, the, for instance, the one that Puria had when he had the extra dice, but the extra contract. I didn't like the feel of that at all because, as we've talked about all throughout, you're chaining things together, you're getting certain resources that map your engine and where you're going, and he's getting random contracts all the time. That can be great, though, that power, because then you don't have to go on the contract space. It can be, but I think it can also be a hindrance. Yeah, but I just don't think they're the be-all and end-all. I'm playing the same tune, brother. <laughs> I'm with you on that totally, that... I don't know, people go, it's, it's all about the player power. It's not all about the player power. It's about how you work them all together. It's one more variable to consider when making your plan. There is a power, though, that, well, I've almost gotten to the point of snapping the tile and throwing it away. You get to set your own dice values at the beginning of the round. Now, I'll tell you, I never, ever put this into a game where people are playing their first game because it's almost like 
you're playing a different game. The game is how to best use your dice you've rolled. And in this case, you get to set your dice values. And it doesn't seem like much fun. Is that just rubbish? I find enjoyment in the dice rolls. And the dice can already be manipulated by spending camels. So you're not locked into a certain dice roll. And I like the theatre of the dice roll. There's a little bit of variety, and I'm sure Mr. Mr. Polo had variety when he was out on the open seas. Lady Luck smiled on him a few times in, in storms and things, so why not have a little bit of luck thrown into this game? As we said at the top, you can roll with it. <laughs> you can roll with the dice roll. Can you take your time? <laughs> no, you can't. Can, can you say? <laughs> what you say? What, what you say? Can you do it any other way? You're a fool. And to get back to the point... Can we talk about the bloke who can travel from Oasis to Oasis now? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Uh, The great wonder wall of China. Shall we move on? I think. Sorry. Anyway, there's another power that gives you 11 trading houses, and you can lay them everywhere you go. Sean, no one has ever laid 11 trading houses. I don't care what they say. Oh, that seems, seems impossible. I'm not sure I've ever got to seven. No, I certainly haven't. I certainly haven't. I'm like over, you know, I'm approaching double figures in plays and oh, I got five last time. Yeah, I don't like the Beijing one either. That's that's one of the ones I don't like. Oh, the guy who starts in Beijing. I don't like it. It's just blunt. It's give it to the stupid player. So you give it to me, obviously. The one, so you, you don't have to work for that one. There you go. It's 10 bonus points. You might as well just say here's 10 bonus points. Yeah, no one's really sure if he's supposed to place a trading house in there or not. I'm not sure I've seen an answer, I guess. Well, you you did. Are you saying that you might have cheated? (laughs) No comment. What I found interesting, actually, it meant that it took out the race to get to certain action spaces because one of the nice things about when you go to a big city is that no one can use the power of the big city unless they have a trading house there. And getting one player in a big city and only they can use the action really takes some of the stress off them and they can know I've got that action sewn up and the guy in Beijing can do that early on whereas once you get two or three people in a big city it's much more pressure to take that city action before the other person steals it nip and tuck stealing of each other as the rounds went by for me the player powers are not the game's all about it's just another clever way of guiding you into exploring different strategies yeah, I think you're right. I hope it's not as blunt as that. I like to think that the game would encourage you to explore different strategies anyway, but I think it does present opportunities to explore. So we're going to move on to your favourite topic. Did the game appeal to you visually? Oh, I thought you were going to say ice cream. <laughs> nice. Um, did the game appeal to you visually, Sean? And was the look of the game appropriate for the experience? Did it look like what you thought it was going to be? I think so. It looked fairly run-of-the-mill Euro-y, nice. There was nothing striking about it. Was there anything vibrant? There was No, there was nothing vibrant. But I think it was perfectly functional, right? Uh, it, it looked okay. Quality of the components generally high, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm more than happy with them. The tokens on the board, on the tees, all stood out from the boards. Your own meeples themselves, a little jaunty hat on them. Yeah, very nice, very nice, yeah. I like a 13th century hat. <laughs> a jaunty... Strasbourg, ra- that's the game for hats. A jaunty, rakish angle. Oh, the Strasbourg hats. Oh, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. In terms of theme... Did you feel like you had the experience of travelling and setting up profitable trade routes and being a merchant and exploiting these new riches? In terms of travelling, yes. 
I felt like I definitely was traveling across the globe. It's very hard, as you said. We're not in Boeing 747s. So trying to get across the globe was difficult. And trading? No. I didn't feel like I was trading for these resources. I mean, it felt like... I could have been harvesting them. I could have been stealing them. I didn't get that at all. I get what you're saying about you feel like you're exploring and and opening up new opportunities to yourself. But the resources mainly came from that market area and it was always available and it never developed. And it's not like you gave yourself access to new resources by traveling, maybe new ways of getting the same resources. But the bog standard way of placing down two dice and taking some silk was always there. And I think that is the one part that didn't feel thematic to me. Like, why Why were they always there? What market was I supposed to be at that I could always buy these resources in order to sell on? Is it the market in Venice? Well, I'm not buying spice and silk in Venice. I'm supposed to be buying it elsewhere and bringing it back, aren't I? I can see that. And uh, yeah, as I said, I just didn't feel like it yourself i didn't feel like i was trading at all but the theme of trading itself has been done to death right trading the mediterranean and all the jokes there around and probably this will put some people off trying the game you know it's a trading game with marco Polo. you'll be like oh we've seen this a million times with different resources resources great we've seen this a million times and money money fantastic what does this do different compared to other trading games i just think that trading although important isn't the most important thing there are so many things that you could say about this game oh that's the most important no 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 that's the most important no no actually that's really important i didn't think of that so that's what i think it does i think it brings a lot of things to the pot it brings a lot of different mechanisms that maybe not unique to the game itself that it blends together to make it unique and it makes it very very difficult to eke out anything so trading is just one aspect of it a lot of these games are all about if you trade well you're going to do well not necessarily in this game. No, there's a game very much like that coming up, though, as our fourth review. You decide which mechanism is most important to you each time you play. So it might be handling contracts, but it might not be. It varies as you go. I'm going to go over a couple of points before we summarise. Approachability. How approachable did you find playing the Voyages of Marco Polo? I'll actually say, Ronan, initial reaction was is actually not the most approachable game. I think it was an interesting game, made me want to delve deeper, but I think those first couple of goes especially, and maybe as much as three of the five rounds into the first game, I had no idea what I was doing. Nothing. That's quite frustrating in itself. I think there's that slight barrier to being able to use things effectively. If you play someone who's a bit more experienced at this game than yourself, you can go one of two ways. You can be put off by the game, because actually you're just getting smashed or you can learn from them and and want to improve yourself and try to get better i'm echoing you man when i first got taught it we just played a two-player game and i was lost i sat there going what what am i I can't do anything i've only got five dice it costs like three dice just to get some gold and then two to travel and then i've gone nowhere i've I've done nothing and three turns in i've done nothing and slowly the game I think, reveals itself. But in, just in terms of approachability, I did find it hard work to get into it. I can understand there's a barrier of entry there. But moving on to the more plays, and we have covered it quite a lot, but maybe just summarise your thoughts in terms of replayability and variety and experience of each play. 
Oh, it's all there. There's inbuilt replayability in terms of the powers, the dice rolling, the routes you're taking, but there's also the the stuff that the player's going to bring. They're going to want to investigate new opportunities and new things that they can do. And, oh, hang on, if I'd have just done this. And that's what this game is all about. I don't think you're ever going to become perfect at this game because of the variability to it and how things can change. You've got dice rolling in it, for God's sake. So things like that are always going to make it seat-of-the-pants stuff. You're going to have to adapt as you go. And that inherently brings replayability. Okay, now we did a little comparison with Big Book of Madness, and I'm going to steal your idea because you wrote your show notes first. <laughs> so other dice worker placement games, how do you compare this to... I'm going to throw out Kingsburg, Alien Frontiers, any others you've got? brings in this dice as workers that other games have done as you said kingsburg alien frontiers stone age we've we covered praetor where you may not have rolled the dice but they were still definitely your workers euphoria has done it but it's done it in a slightly different way not nothing nothing too innovative slightly different way but it's just what all the other things around it and how they all marry together it just doesn't compare for my money yeah, I don't find it very similar to Kingsburg at all. Probably Alien Frontiers is the closest comparison for me. But much as I do enjoy Alien Frontiers, this is two steps up in terms of complexity, depth, replayability, exploration. If you play Alien Frontiers, you think, that's a good game, but I wish there was a little bit more meat to it without it becoming too complicated. I would suggest having a look at Voyages and Marco Polo. I think it takes dice worker placement and it does it better than any other game I've played. The mitigation of the dice rolls, the variety of things you can do. I've said that a million times this review. I'll probably say it one more time when we sum up. And it is just a cut above as far as I'm concerned. Sean, your final thoughts on the Voyages of Marco Polo. A tough one to encounter first of all, but you've been on a journey with this game. How do you feel? Well, if you'd have asked me this question after my first or second game of this, I would have almost 100% said to you, yeah, it's okay, but it's not for me. So that it brought a question into my mind. Does being bad at a game, because I see myself as being quite bad at this. I've never finished higher than third. Does being bad at the game hamper your enjoyment? And how much else does the game have to have before you say, actually, I do want to come back to that? It's not nice being smashed. But with this game... I actually do want to play it again. I've come to that realisation quite recently in in my games of it. Before, it was a case of, yeah, I'd play it because there are avenues to explore and there's still things that I really need to look at. But every time I play it, I get that little bit better. And every time I play it, I understand it that little bit more. It doesn't come naturally to me because I'm not good at building routes or planning routes. But there's so much to explore in this game. There's so many avenues you can go down. It's reacting, seat of the pants stuff to what the players doing around you, what the market's doing, what your dice rolls are. I don't think it's the most interactive game. You can block each other out of areas, but if people can always place there. Other than that, I think it's a very, very solid game and I'll be always happy to try and improve my scores. Well, I love it. 
it's definitely one of my favourite games of 2015. It's going to be right up there when we do our end of year review. I'm sure of it. I can always take a different route in the game. An overarching strategy, but make tactical decisions, which is perfect for me. It doesn't outstay its welcome. It's done in 90 minutes, but you are constantly thinking over those 90 minutes. It is definitely a game you learn now you heard that from sean when you start off you are going to be scoring way fewer points than you are scoring after a few games so you will probably lose to a much more experienced player but that doesn't mean you're getting smashed out because as sean said in fact the lack of interaction there means that you are still able to do your own plan and find yourself improving and find your own way through the game There is so much to explore. It is so interesting. It throws up a different challenge every time you play it and almost every round when you're playing a game and seeing where people are going and trying to make your economy work and maximise the opportunities. I think The Voyages of Marco Polo is an absolutely brilliant game and this is going to stay in my collection for years to come. Okay, onwards and upwards. Now we're going to talk about Porta Negra. This is coming from a whole host of people, but mainly for the English speaking. This is from Strongholds Games, also from Eggertspiel, Gigamic, and Pegasus Spiel. It's designed by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer. And they are incredibly popular designers, always seem to have a massive release at Essen, and the likes of Cole Baron, Asara, Cavum, and the list goes on and on and on. They had Adventureland out, which was one of the new Haber range for the slightly older audience, was one of theirs. So yeah, loads and loads of games, always of a certain standard. This game plays two to four players, and is... Suggested at 75 to 120 minutes. I think that's probably a little bit much. I think you can shave a bit of time off that one, certainly. It is themed around the largest Roman city north of the Alps in the late Roman Empire was Augusta Trevorum. Your Latin is flawless, Sean. Flawless! Absolutely flawless. And in the times of Caesar, these areas were being built up by Roman architects. And... One of the largest of these was the Porta Negra, or the Black Gate, the German city of Trier. So in the game, four locations, and you're working to basically outdo the last architect or builder. So, Brennan, let's start where I always like to start with this. The general look of the game. How do you feel about what the look of it and how it lent itself to the gameplay? I guess this is similar to Voyages of Marco Polo, Sean, in that it's not very innovative artwork, it's not particularly striking, but it is handsome, I will say, rather than beautiful, and it is evocative. I kind of feel like I'm in Roman times. I've got a cool dude with cool feathers in his helmet on a horse riding around the place and some ye olde styly buildings. It does the job. It does, and everything's very clear. You can very clear. You can tell where you are, what you're aiming for. You can tell what scores where, etc. Hundred percent. That yeah. is absolutely fundamental to this. Where the striking element of this game is, and what's made people's heads turned when it was in Essen and before, is those building tiles, Ronan. 
Yeah, so the mechanism of the game and the way you're building these buildings is that there is a market with building tiles. They are similar to the Torres tile, Sean, but there's a marked similar, difference. Similar, Ronan. Not the same. Not the same. Don't make Mr. Bonacore call you out in public again. <laughs> similar, but these ones are textured. So textured. Let's just get that right. Textured, sure. Right. So basically, these building tiles, they're all the same, but depending on where they're on the board, they're going to have a colour. And there's different areas for the four buildings. And you're going to purchase these bricks and place them in the different buildings in the appropriate coloured area to score points and they're going to cost different amounts of money depending upon what value they are so the black bricks are cheapest and the white bricks for example are most expensive so the tiles themselves are fine and actually they build up a 3d scape as you build around and it's easy to see how many are left in the market and all the rest of it but there is a definite definite issue to do with components and the building tiles and it's not the building tiles themselves do you want to go over it or shall i i have here and my notes say ask ronan if he likes the choice of colors for the tiles and the player meeples are you asking me i'm asking you okay so the player colors in this game are red blue black and yellow the brick colors are red blue black yellow and white there are more colours than that in the world, Sean. The red bricks do not belong to the red player. They can belong to anyone, but they are still red bricks and have to go in the red brick space. And you only know they're red bricks because of where they are on the board. But what you have is you're putting bricks into a red space and then putting a yellow meeple on top. And it might sound simple. It's really confusing. It's like when you show it to players, they go, hold on, what? Why black bricks, but I'm not the black player. And then you forget to put your meeple on top because you're physically putting them on a space that looks black coloured and like, but I'm the blue player. And something in your brain stops you from putting your blue meeple on these black bricks, even though you know you should. Because the fruit are saying four colours. It's the worst decision. What are they thinking? Green, orange, purple and silver and gold and grey and... Multiple hues, Sean. Hues, I tell you. <laughs> Wahoos! Don't make that decision. The worst. Do I have to go through my hue joke again? Don't, don't go there. <laughs> Neither Jackman nor Grant. I don't care. Um, Come on, man. Why is this nonsense? I, I noticed it when I first started playing, but honestly, I didn't have any problem with it. I had no confusion. The player boards told me what building colours my building pieces were. I knew that I just had to place my meeple on top wherever they went on the board because that's that was my building. You forgot to do it. I was doing it for yeah, you. Yeah, but that's because I keep forgetting to place my meeples. Mean. Yeah, but that's for just forgetting to place my meeples. It's that's not. not because it's the colour. I'm telling you, I'm, it's not. <laughs> I'm telling you what you think, like I usually do. I'm serious. I don't think it is. I think there's literally a mental block of, I'm yellow. I put these on red bricks, and you move on. No, but I was doing it with yellow buildings as well. Well, I can't help that. <laughs> it's just I was forgetting to put my maple on top. There's nothing deeper to it than that. I, I see your point. There should have been more colours. I don't like the fact that the black and the blue are quite similar. They're both quite dark, and if you take a snapshot of the board, it's difficult to tell 
blue and black apart if they're next to each other and you think oh hang on black's doing well there but get in there and it's not actually nice blue and the black but shocking choice i don't i don't get your level of rant i get your <sighs> rant but i don't get the level of it i'm genuinely really annoyed mate. Like, oh stupid idea anyway <laughs> any more components you want me to discuss i liked the player boards i thought they were perfectly functional i know you don't like the color scheme but the player boards perfectly functional do exactly what you need them to do probably the opposite of the favor of the pharaoh in like they they actually had a function so i quite like them yeah you stick your bricks when you buy them from the market because where they are in the market takes their color and then you have this tiny little sort of rack and where you put them on that rack takes their color it is very simple it's very functional very clever i love that there's a little explanation of the extra actions and small artwork but very clear symbology on your tiny little board it could have been just a plain bit of artwork but they've actually made it a bit of a player aid and that sort of clever design makes the other aberration even more puzzling anyway the board, Sean, maybe? Yeah, so the board, Ronan. You've got the four gates, or the four areas. You've got the Basilica, the Amphitheatre, the City Wall, and the Porto Negro itself. And it's very, very obvious which area corresponds to which scoring space. The board is divided into four, so you've already got that natural distinction from area to area. They've got lines there, and you've got the building at the top of it. Very easy to tell which area you're in. No problem there. And I quite like the little stylish pencil drawings, but maybe they're not quite easy enough to tell apart at a glance. Actually, I think they're okay, and they're slightly different coloured. I think the wall and Porto Negro are both quite dark, but it's okay. And what is absolutely is clear where you're on the board, and it is clear what building you're attached to, and that becomes very important because during the game, there are, until they run out, six cards available. And if you build in a certain colour, in a certain quadrant of the city, so if you build in the amphitheatre in yellow, for example, that card's available, you get to take that card, and those cards offer some end game bonus scoring as well as the points you're going to get for scoring the rest of it which we're going to go into and to be able to tell at a glance what building for what colour goes to get that card is very important and that they have done well you're not messing around you're not oh this one is what one all good why is it important that these these four areas on the border are clearly delineated it's because you're moving around from section to section now, movement is, as Ronan said, you've got this little standee with a horsey and a very highly dressed young Roman noble or what have you. Or, and he is the guy that's going to interact with all the building pieces. And he has to be in the right area to buy a certain brick colour. So, yeah, you have to be in the, the walls areas to buy the blue bricks and Porto Negra area to buy the red bricks, apart from the white bricks, which encompass all of the four areas. So it's very important to see where you're moving. Now, also, movement across the board costs you money. And every time you move, you have to go in a clockwise direction around the board. So movement in this game, Ronan... It's strange because you're going to be buying the bricks and you're going to be building, like we said, and where you are to take where you can buy and build. But it's just a weird money efficiency issue and it's not that expensive and it's just kind of a weird mechanism, I find, because it restricts you, but only a tiny bit. Uh, So you have to pay like two to jump to the other side of the board across two quadrants, right? And I want it to go either way. I'd rather it was more limited and more punishing to move so you had to plan a bit better 
Or it was just completely free to move, and it had to be there from the turn before to build in there. Sometimes people can kind of plan a little bit where you are. I don't know, but it, it was strangely limiting. It, it kind of irritated me a little bit that movement thing, and I can't really explain why. I always found money quite tough, and I know we had this discussion when we last played this, Ronan, that you've seen people who were just flush with money and couldn't get. Well, it's, it's funny because I've played it flush with money, and I've played it with very little money, and it kind of depends how you want to go. I'm always right on the limit with the money. I don't bring a lot of money in, and I don't have a constant flow of money coming in. I find it an irritant, but I, I like the fact that it's an irritant. So maybe a slight tweak. Maybe if it costs you two or three to once you pass Porto Negro or something like that. Well, I, I love that the design team of Rice and Rice is correcting Kramer and Keating. <laughs> <laughs> what do they know, right? Oh, well, we, we've got we've got the name. Well, you probably shut up on the variants for this one. Move on. <laughs> so yeah, that's movement. That's, it's not everything in this game why do we move around these areas we're not just collecting the bricks we're also building and we're trying to build in these specific areas the way that they score is completely different and some of them the way that you actually build is completely different elaborating a bit more on that but also how important is it where you build and why so each area has got these certain places to build, right? And so, for example, in the wall, it's got a two-brick space and a one-brick space for each different colour. So you can build with two whites and one white. But once that's full, there's no more whites can go in there. Or there's a two-red space and a one-red space. And when that's full, there's no more reds can go in there. Porto Negro, you're building stacks of between three and eight bricks of a colour. And they call score a bonus depending upon the value of the bricks. So the black bricks score one point per brick in your stack of three to eight. And the white ones score five points for everyone in your stack. The other two areas, Amphitheatre and the Basilica, score fairly similarly. There's rows and, again, there's limited spaces. So once they're full up, they're full up. And the other thing to consider is that always the more valuable bricks will score you more points. So whites through yellows, reds, blues, and then blacks will score you the least number of points as you build. Now, this is interesting because then there's a tug of war between... You want to place higher value bricks in these areas because they're going to score you more points. And it's the same action to build. Building once is building once. Strictly, building whites will score you more points for your one build action. However, there's end game scoring for each of these quadrants. And they all score in different ways as well. But it's always going to be some form of majority, be it majority in a row, be it majority in overall bricks, higher stack, whatever it might be. So that might make you think, well... I'll therefore want to grab lower value bricks and then get in there and build more of them because I have limited money. If I buy high value bricks, obviously I've spent all my money. But what makes that interesting is the limit of actions. You can't flood it with low value bricks in any of the areas. And also, if there's ties in, for example, a row who has most bricks, it's who's built the higher value bricks that breaks the tie. And that kind of balance, Sean, between grabbing majorities with lower value bricks or scoring highly and, and taking the tie break with the higher value bricks as to where you are linked into those bonus cards you mentioned earlier, it all means that although it looks like a game where you're just running around chucking bricks down they're all going to score some points, actually it becomes clear after a play or two I need to be very precise where I build. My limit is in actions, not necessarily in bricks. Absolutely. I think I learnt quite quickly how important that was. In my very first game, 
everybody, including me, took a look at the actual Porta Negra space. And that just seemed to offer so much more points than everywhere else. Because if you can get a stack of five or six, you're getting more points than any other place offers. And also at the end of the game, you're getting multiple scoring opportunities. So the person who gets the majority in, in eight stacks, and you're not going to get many eight stacks at all, is going to get 37 points. The person who gets the majority in seven stacks is going to get a slightly less amount and all the way down to three. So they all started fighting for dominance in that area, which just left me free to hoover up all the other three areas. I think I had dominance in two and I had a second in one. And all the time I was just eking scoring points, scoring points and making sure I had dominance in them. So it's very, very important how you plan and where you go to. That's why I think that money aspect in terms of moving, it can just about tip it in your favour. What I'll say is that this is an aspect of the game which isn't completely clear when you first play. And I actually think you probably have to go through a whole game and the majority scoring at the end to have it really click and go, okay, now I can make some really informed decisions. Now, it's not that complicated. You can see majorities are going to score. But the actual importance of where to go, I do think this takes a game to get your head around the whole strategy of it. Oh, it does. And you mentioned the set collection aspect as well. And that's very important because that's 20 points for the set. So people can base their whole selection of where to go based on getting as many of those sets into their hand. Yeah, you definitely want to keep an eye on those bonus cards. Now, actually, I'm going to talk about something now, going to one of my criticisms of the game. You score 20 points for having a complete set of four different building bonus cards, which is what you're trying to collect. There is a mechanism within the game called Honor Cards, which you can purchase with a currency called Scrolls. Within that system, you can hand in your set of four that's worth 20 points for a card that's worth 30 points. And then using more scrolls, you can upgrade that to a card that's worth 42 points. And then another card that's worth 56 points and so on. And up to 56 points is a big chunk of scoring. But However, there are only three 30-point cards available. There are only two 42-point cards and one 56-point card. In a four-player game, that's great. And there's a race to them. There's a certain point where you might want to think, I'm not escalating this anymore. I'm out of this race. Let someone else chase them. In a two-player game, there's still three. There's no race there. So the set collection is almost more important with the more players there are. There are the same number of bonus cards with fewer players in the game. So therefore, there is not that race to get the only four Basilica cards which are available or the only four Amphitheater cards because there are more than enough available to go around. So I think when you get to four players, the set collection becomes more important, much looser with fewer don't like that aspect of the game i don't like that race i don't like that there's it's fewer as you go up and there's not enough for everybody first game i ever played at this one player got their set collected first missed out on the 30 point card so that another person got that first got their 30 point card and the next turn the 42 point card came out so that was hoovered up and the next turn after that person was me, who got managed to get my 42-point card, Hoover's up. She was the first person to collect all the buildings by, by a distance, yet she missed out on those bonuses. I thought that, that was a bit, a bit luck-driven. Yeah, but you have to purchase those cards with the scrolls, right? And there are other uses for the scrolls. And it's almost a push your luck. And you have to realise, if it's not going to go for me, 
I can use these in a completely different fashion. I can do useful things with them, and I can make this game work for me in another way. It, it's not the only way to chase and score points. Oh, no, it isn't. But when you set your stall out to chase those points, and you work hard to get your cassette collection, and it was almost the case that the other players weren't too bothered about it because she was definitely going to get those cards and that was their area. But we just happened to have a couple of scrolls handy when those cards came out and it was okay. No brainer. I've got my four set cards that I've probably done two turns later than she did. Yeah. But Sean, you know, that talks to me about the whole nature of Porta Negra. It's a tactical game. We talked a lot there about the, scoring at the end of the game and the rewards but there's also instant scoring run and these can really keep your, your score ticking along where's the balance between the instant scoring and trying to get maybe the the higher white numbers rather than just filling up with the lower black ones than the end of game scoring where's the balance there yeah i don't think i found it sure <laughs> i'm not entirely sure whether it's worth going for those big white bricks or not, because it means it becomes very expensive and they're usually more scarce. And how important is the majority scoring? I, I think it comes back to what you decide you want to do and what becomes available to you and, and what becomes available where you're on the board so you're not wasting money moving. I think that that reward you get for every multiple of three bricks you have in an area, so each of the quadrants has a different reward for each set of three bricks you build, that can really drive you on. Because you're limited in only having five Romans at the beginning of the game, so you can only build five building elements until you run out. But that's the main way of you getting more of them in. By hitting or triggering a bonus, they'll give you one or two Romans. They'll give you extra money. They'll give you an extra white brick if you build in the wall. And that, I think, really does form part of your strategy. Like I need to get three in there. And timing the right time to get a bonus card, trigger three, get the extra five money and two Romans I need, and moving on from there. Yeah, there's a way of going, like, for example, if you go and build loads in the wall, that'll get you free white bricks. And then you can use those to build a huge white stack in Porta Negra. That's a valid strategy. It also means that you have to keep scoring during the game because there's only limited spaces for these bricks. You cannot sit and hoard. So you almost have to just keep on scoring and churning around. But part of that instant scoring has to be part of... What are you trying to do overall? What majorities are you going for? What awards do you need right at this time? Yeah, no, I agree, especially with the multiples of three thing. It's another way to just keep that economy going. So we've talked about sort of getting these resources into your hands, but what drives this game? Well, it's actually driven by cards. You're going to get seven cards in a four-player game or eight in a two- or three-player game. And each turn you're going to have a choice of two. Cards have what your basic actions are. They will either have a scroll, which we talked about briefly, about these, how you get the bonus cards, little torches, which allow you to place extra actions on the cards. And it's then got a range of actions. You can take a brick from a certain area, you can take a random brick, or you can build, or you can take some money into your hand. But you only have two or three action markers, and these are depicted by a row of torches at the bottom this shows you how many actions you can place on that card so you have a hand of two cards and you're going to choose one to use for that particular round and then you're going to place your action markers down on the actions that you're taking the torch tokens that i spoke about they are going to give you a chance to increase your actions so if you have two torch tokens on a five action card use three 
and then two torches so you can use the whole card. That's how the game is driven, Ronan. It's a very simple sounding way. Is there enough choice on them? Well, what they do really is limit what you can do. You are limited to only two cards and I feel that that limitation is what makes this game for me just a light to medium game. The game pretty much scripts what you can do on a turn you can't long-term plan what actions you want to take it's all about building a bit tactically it's all about taking the opportunities that develop over time which of these two cards is good for me right now if it's a card with two building actions on it and i've got no bricks clearly that's not the card to play right now so then i have to play this other card in my hand because the other one makes no sense and then you're limited really to you know which three or five am i going to take so you don't have wide open options it's about that scarcity of actions coupled with the scarcity of building opportunities where you can get nabbed ahead off, coupled with sort of basically the scarcity of, of resources. And that's what drives the game. It's all about limiting, 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 giving you limited choices. Yeah, I agree with you. It definitely lightens the game. One of the things I thought about, Ronan, was do the cards actually give you any real choices? Would maybe a pool of actions make the game a bit deeper, a bit more complex? Or do you think that the cards actually work well for what it's already set up to be? I quite like the card mechanism because I think it fits in what you're doing. It is a relatively light little game. And I think that it just flies by. You can't take long making decisions on your turn because if it took too long or you had too much chance to think or too much term to plan, when someone then nabbed in ahead of you and got the honour card you were chasing for your scrolls or built in that one place you're trying to build to get the majority, it would be much more irritating. Again, the limited choices match the limited opportunities and I think it's fine for me for this weight of game. What about the torch? tokens that allow you to spend extra actions do you think that they maybe make the game even lighter on top of that is that a kind of get out of jail thing if people are struggling i'm gonna go the other way i think they're actually the one way you can say this card doesn't fit me right now but you can always throw away an action to take one coin by the way which is a complete waste of an action but with a torch card you can say it hasn't quite opened up for me i'm gonna grab a torch because hopefully when this card comes out and all five actions suit me, I can just bam, bam and grab them. It's obviously a way of keeping your gunpowder dry and allowing you to grab opportunities fully rather than being completely frustrated and going, oh, I had cruddy cards earlier. I couldn't do anything with them. Now I've got a good card and I can't do everything I want to do. It kind of mitigates that luck a bit of timing. Clever planning with the torch tokens actually bears business i don't know how to do it but i've seen it <laughs> no i spend them as soon as i get them oh uh, i love that so we t- talked about the bonus cards but we talked about one specific type about them it's another thing to think about isn't it ronan you spend your scrolls there's various different ones there's ones that give you a, just a, a straight up brick of a certain color there's ones that allow you to place in a, a another level so very handy in the Porto Negro section if various other little things how much do they add to the game for you Ronan I'm gonna say not that much I think the adding a level in Porto Negro was one of the most interesting ones because getting down a three or four is quite easy but whoever like we said has the majority of them is going to score a lot of points the ability to grab that card to make it a five and the only five I think that's quite interesting to be able to grab those 
uh, you know, some of them gave you a torch and some money. It's, it's another way of getting money in, if needs be, if you've made a mistake. If you weren't able to get that one building card, there are substitute building bonus cards available in the honor card deck. And again, I think it's always of mitigating frustration. The one strategy one is chasing those bonus cards up to the 56 points, of course, which you can go down. It's just other ways of stopping this from clogging up, I think, keeping the game flowing. I think you're right. I have seen people, again, not me, I have seen people use them very cleverly. It's a nice distraction. It's something just not too taxing to think about. So, Ronan, we've talked about the end-of-game scoring, and there's also halfway scoring, and quite an interesting choice halfway through the game as well. It's really interesting. It could be the most interesting part of this game, (laughs) and amazing how it affects the end result how often. So what happens is... We were talking about you can't hoard bricks for various reasons because of nabbing opportunities. There's one very important reason. Once everyone's played their deck of action cards, be it seven or eight, that's the halfway point of the game, unless you're playing two players. And at that point, you count up how many bricks you've built, you double it, and that value you can take in any combination of money and points. And you will have spent most of your money at this stage, probably. If you haven't, you're probably not playing that well. But... The chance of scoring 20, 24 points maybe is pretty tempting. And then what Sean's about the efficiency of movement actually comes into it. Because if you've wasted six money, for example, moving around we didn't really need to, that's six points. And this game can often be quite close. That halfway choice is brilliant. And also, interestingly, whoever's last at halfway gets to choose who goes first for the second half of the game. So sometimes you want to manipulate it so that you stay last. And when someone is clearly behind everyone else, you can go... You know, now I can take loads of points because I'm not fighting for last place. That is a great mechanism halfway through this game and agonising. It is agonising, absolutely. Oh my god. So that's Fortinegra, Ronan. It is a Keyzone and Kramer game. They do release a lot of games. How do you think it compares to some of their other games? Well, I'm just going to compare it to three of their more recent titles, which I've played. I'm going to say it's similar in weight to Asara probably slightly lighter than Palaces of Carrara and Coal Baron. In terms of quality, I'll say probably not quite as good as Sarah for me, but better than Palaces of Carrara and Coal Baron. And it's a good next step game from Keys and Kramer. I don't think it's right at the top table of their designs, but it's probably the next step down. And apart from the stupid colours choice, like I say, it's if you want to show some proper gaming ideas to newer gamers who don't just want to play fillers but want to get their teeth into what this gaming hobby is all about I think you do a lot worse than Porta Negra yeah in terms of weighing it just up against some of the other games I'm not the biggest Kramer and Kiesling fan I like their games they have released things like Cavern which I absolutely despise you're wrong I know I'm wrong I know I'm wrong but I, I agree with Ronan Asara is a very strong game I really enjoyed that but for the stuff I've played I think it's right up there alongside the likes of Asara we've talked through about it now Ronan so if you're ready I'll bean for your final thoughts I like Portanegra it's a good 90 minute lightish Euro it really plays best in a group of four. It's built to play with four. It feels tight like a proper Euro should. It all plays very smoothly. The only thing it can be is it, it can bring out a tendency to overthink from Euro gamers because it has the trappings of a deeper game. But each turn should really just be less than a minute, possibly even less than 30 seconds. It's just chucking down, choosing a couple of actions, exploiting the board, 
Just one eye and a bit of a longer term plan. Grab those majorities. If they're landing in your lap, you really need to get on them. The three brick bonuses, timing it. The mid-game scoring is really interesting. It's not going to rock your world, Porto Negra. It's not innovative. But if you've got a gap in your collection for a Euro, which will work with a variety of gaming groups and will bring players onwards and inwards towards something deeper, this is where this fits. I like it, Porto Negra. It's a good game. Oh, you're really annoying me now, Ronan. I don't like to agree with you so much. It's not good for my complexion. It's shocking. It really is shocking. shocking. We played too many good games this month. That's the problem. That is the problem. What Ronan said, it's a very good, lighter Euro game. It's really easy to teach to the point where after my very first go at this, I was able to sit down and teach 99% of it. It's very easy to get into. Once you start playing, you almost click straight away with the mechanisms and how everything works. I don't think that's always a positive because I I sometimes feel like those cards do not offer enough choice to me. But then on another day, I might be glad of it because I don't really want that head scratchy, deep Euro experience. So it definitely does have a place in my collection. I, I tend to go either for really deep or really light Euros. So I think that just, as Ryan said, sits right in the middle and I'm agreeing with him again and it's disgusting. A strong game from two strong designers. That's Porta Negra. So our final game of this episode is another SN2015 release. It's Res Publica 2230 AD. This is an old Reiner Knizia design from the early 90s, which has been taken by publishers Mage Company, revamped, rethemed, a couple of extra different types of cards thrown in and re-released. This is themed around sci-fi civilizations of different races and you are attempting to expand, start building different developments like a space stations and cities and universities and what have you and complete missions. You're going to be doing that by trading cards. Everyone starts with a hand of race cards and you're looking to collect sets of those race cards to build different facilities. As soon as you get a space station, as well as drawing a race card every turn, you're also going to be able to draw from a different deck of technology cards. They're going to let you build different types of developments, which again is going to expand your capabilities. When you get more space stations, you can draw more technology cards. And how are you going to get these sets? And this is the most important thing of this game because it is a pure trading game. On your turn, you're going to be able to offer one or two sets of cards or request one or two sets of cards and it's up to the other players to decide whether they wish to make that trade with you sean the game ends when either you've gone through the whole technology deck or when someone completes these four missions if you're playing with a mission variant which basically score you points for doing things within the game building a certain number of space stations building cities handing in technology cards it's all about collecting sets and handling cards players start with just four cards and they're just from the race deck and they just draw one card each turn until they can get building hands and sets get space stations and build more but never more than three cards a turn but right back to that beginning of the game does it drag out too much at the beginning when sometimes players can have nothing to trade i don't think it does ronan because i think the game is so quick if you've got nothing to trade you're just going to pick up cards 
maybe you could start with a few more cards, but I, I didn't find that he dragged at all. I felt it was quite interesting to see what I would pick up next, see if I could get at the starts of a set and then start thinking about what I want to trade for. Yeah, with only a handful of races in there, it's possible, I guess, if you had a higher number of starting cards, it might be easier for players to get sets to start with and get a jump start. And a jump start is on to my next question, because if you get left behind, if you can't make those trades and you do not get a space station early, does that basically count you out the game? Because when you hand in five of the same race, you build a space station, it's going to score you three points. It's also going to let you draw another card. You've doubled your draws. It scored you points. It might even score you twice because it's part of one of your missions as well. Is not being able to get a space station early a game killer? It depends what you define as early. If you're halfway through this game and you still haven't got a space station, then absolutely you're out of the game. Which isn't great to know that you probably can't win a game only halfway through. But I would like to think that most people, unless they're very unlucky would get a space station fairly early i think it is possible for someone to jump ahead but there are mitigating factors to stop that person jumping too far ahead i think there's probably some onus on other players to trade with each other if you're behind and try and help each other and get each other out there's a lot of player interaction in the game but is there any downtime to the game because it is quite simple it's not going to keep you sucked in with the mechanics it's all about are you constantly involved I think with the downtime side, if you're going to play this game to win, and I, I don't necessarily even think you have to be on the top of your game to want to play this game. I think it is a very much a almost like a playing on the train game it can be. But if you're on the game, you're, you're concentrating on what people are offering, what people want, so that you can maybe offer it to them at a later stage and haggle with them better and get better results. So that's something you can do in your downtime. To speed it up, I think people have just got to be ready to go with their trades keep an eye on what's going on around them but just be ready to go don't be thinking about it when it comes around to you simple things but i think the game benefits from quick play that's every game (laughs) (laughs) once the pattern is set off the game sean does the game hold any surprises the scoring is all linear once you start building your developments you become more powerful is it set in stone or and trading is everything in this game so if somebody jumps ahead, as I said before, then maybe, as you said, the players working together, cutting them out of trades for a little while, working together to try and get their own trades going. So that might be the only real sort of thing you can do to shake it up. I think it has got a fairly linear path, but the negotiation is to keep to a certain formula. There can't be too much table chat going on. When Mage Company took this over, they made some changes. One of the things they added are the pilot's cards in the race deck. Now, they are basically a wild. They can join any other race, and they add to your set. Have they added fun, or have they just added luck off the draw? Because I know that we played it a couple of days ago, and I got a couple of pilots in my first hand of four cards, and it basically set me off straight off into leagues. It was so much easier to put a set together with those. At first, I thought maybe I don't like these pilot cards because they are random, but everything's random in this game. I just thought if there's something that would make this game a bad experience, is it dragging too long? And if the pilots are going to come in and then we're going to make it quicker because you've got more chance of getting the sets and more chance of advancing, I think more power to them. Like, fair on, crack on, put them in. I'm noting a theme in your answers. <laughs> it's no no secret. I, I quite like the game, but I don't like it if it drags too long. 
Okay. The other thing they did was in the technologies deck now, they put troopers in there. Now, troopers, if you keep them in the hand, are worth one point at the end of the game. But they can also be used to block someone else's building from using the special power. There's buildings such as universities that let you build cities more cheaply. There are colonies that let you take cards out of the discard pile. Should they be more powerful, though? Because everyone always ends up just holding on to them because they're worth a point, and blocking someone else's building for 110 is not worth a point. Also, is there a chance there that troopers could have been handed out as a catch-up mechanism? For example, I don't know. If I take a city and no one else is a city, everyone gets one. If I take my second city and you haven't got two cities, everyone else gets one. Whatever it might be. Is there a more innovative use for this idea of a card? So I'm caught in two minds. One, I don't like the fact that the troopers slow the game down. So I'm sticking with my original theme and I'm holding on to it with both hands. You keep running, you say. <laughs> but I do like that you can hamper someone. But yeah, you're right. It's not strong enough to really hamper someone. So you're almost always going to hold on to them. If you are going to use them to maybe draw back the leader and use another thing other than just not trading with them to build them back, maybe they should be a little bit more powerful. Yeah, I was thinking something maybe if they were like mandatory quests in Lords of Waterdeep whereby you throw them at someone and they have to hand in, let's say, three mining cards, for example, just to get rid of them before they can build anything else. There's like an occupying army. I thought that might be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, we are righting the wrongs of everything today. Well done. But not Kramer and Keesling. <laughs> no, I've got to just, just Dr. Knizia. <laughs> just <laughs> Dr. Knizia, yeah. He's, he's nothing in the world of games. We're taking on the giants. <laughs> <laughs> right now, Mage Company have rethemed Respublica into Respublica 2230 AD, a completely different game. It used to be about Rome, now it's about the future. What they've done is add, for example, the unusual race names, the Arthur, the Peans, and the Scythris, and what have you. There's names of technology, they're a bit more kind of you know, mining, warfare, warp speed, teleport, what have you, and also the rewards you can get. So, this kind of layer of theme that they've on there, does it add any interest for you? Well, first of all, the Scythris sounds far too similar to a, an old Irish word that we no, it's we not know. That. It's, it's not polite. I've got the Scythris. <laughs> Fish case of the Scythris. Um, <laughs> There's three people laughing at that in the whole world. Oh, yeah, and we're two of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, the unusual race names, the tech, it's all cool. It's all nice. It's all flavour. I don't think it's imperative to have the the change of the theme. They put in like six pages of background stuff on the races in the rule book, surely just for you. <laughs> just you didn't read them out. You know I like to read you to read them I, out in your I didn't wa- read them. You can stop there. <laughs> it's all it's not gonna make me like or dislike this game. I know I'm all about theme and stuff, but the game's all about the trading it's not about the theme for me i think the roman version probably worked just as well but i like i like the sci-fi theme yeah look it's cool the uh the artwork was it rocking it for you with the artwork i actually appreciated the clarity of the icons they were all different enough that i could look at them in my hand and i wasn't sort of scrolling through even when i had a massive hand of about 30 cards at one stage sign of a good trader yeah brilliant trader and I could tell each and every icon and each and every race differently and each and every bit of technology different. And the, the art on them was, was fine as well. It was nice. 
Yeah, I think the icons are good. I think the names of the races could have been a bit more sensible. Some of them are like five-syllable names. Yeah, when you're talking about trading game, you have to constantly announce that I would like a... You like a what? <laughs> exactly. There's a bit of that goes on. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I love? It barely fits in a very small box. They have kept the box size extremely sensible nice. to the point where you have to like shuffle things around a bit just to get them back in. But but love it. We haven't got like a treasure hunter. I'm just going to go on a random one here from Queen Games. It's about eighty cards. It comes in a full size box. Yeah, that's just. I think that's almost. Don't get me started about the treasure hunter expansion either. <laughs> but I, I find that almost dishonest. Oh, it really annoys me. There are way more than 80 cards in this game, and they've put it in a small box, small price. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've treated it sensibly, that at least. Uh, thematic involvement. Did you feel like a race that was developing itself? Mm, no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Simple answer. No, it's, I don't think the game's that deep that you are going to feel that. Okay, so one of the ways of scoring, it's a variant, but come on, you're going to play with it anyway. It's missions. What you get is a four-part planet in front of you, and as you complete the, the four missions that are on there, you turn them over and score points. If The issue I'm bringing up is, do the missions match the normal scoring too closely? You get points for having more cities, you get points for having more space stations, which what you're going to be trying to do anyway. You get points for completing trades, you're trying to do that anyway. And the only sort of slightly different one is, instead of collecting five of the same technology to build a city, you're collecting one or five different technologies to complete this mission. It's the only mission you're not going to do in the general course of the game anyway if you're playing well. Could they not have given alternative paths to victory and more variety with these missions? I concur with your opinion and your alternative. I think it, it could... There, there is an expansion available, by the way, with different planets for different missions. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe just slightly different. I wouldn't want to... and I'm not one to let go of a point when I'm on it. I wouldn't want to divert massively from that because I think it would elongate the game. We don't definitely have established we don't want elongation. <laughs> but could have had a bit of variety, something else to think about. Okay. When you're scoring with cities, and it is the main way to score points generally, you hand in five technology cards and the first big city built is going to score nine points. The next two score eight, the next two score seven and so on downwards through the deck. This again rewards an early leader, getting early space stations, get technology cards out. Of course for good trading, but drawing cards is important. Could the cities have been more imaginatively designed? To be honest, when I'm next talking to the Knits, I'll, I might mention it to him. Maybe, maybe. When you and him are having a mochaccino. <laughs> We're having a mochaccino. I actually got the same aeroplane as him back from last lesson with him. You should mention that again. You've never told that story. No, no, I've never told that story. So it's a, it's a game pit first. Or You're the 12th. best. Game pit 92nd or something like that. Anyway, so, yeah, I think maybe a little bit of variety in there. Maybe the lower numbers give you a little bonus in terms of maybe collecting five cards with them or telling somebody else that they have to get rid of five cards. Maybe they can be a war city. Something like that. It's just, just thematic, thematic things that won't add too much complexity to the game, but just add something that people go, oh, you cheeky so-so. You are a cheeky so-and-so. <laughs> is it ever worth getting the universities which reduced across the cities or the colonies that allow you to draw cards at the discard part in lieu of just straight-up scoring points? I think so, especially with the colonies. I think that's a 
valid tactical move. It's half the time if people won't trade with you, especially if you're the leader. If people won't trade with you, then you're going to need to find a way of getting those cards into your hand that aren't com- completely random. So, yeah, with that, definitely. I'm, I'm on the fit, though. So I, I, I quite like them. Okay. The game plays three to five players. What's the right player count? For me, Ronan, it's going to be four. I think three, there's not enough opportunity to trade. Five, I think it's just going to make the game go that little fraction longer than I want it to go. So four is the optimum number. Me too, well put. Stop agreeing with me. Can you mitigate who's winning without completely cutting the leader out of the game and ruining their whole experience? This is not a sound of a bitter man, by the way. It, it is. <laughs> I think we've talked about the special cards that actually help you, so you can get the special cards to be able to f- go through the discard pile to get cards. There's things that the leader can do to help themselves as well. They've also got the random draw if they get lucky with that. So I don't think they're ever going to be completely out of the game. I think it's a valid strategy in a trading game to not trade with somebody who is doing better than you it's especially bad with three players i'll have to say one player gets in the lead the other two just completely cut them out it's war is it ever <laughs> worth keeping hold of sets of cards or is it all about getting them down getting them played quickly and boshing through this game now oh, we might have foreshadowed your answer <laughs> get them down Play quickly bosh it out it's a good game when you bosh it out is what i'm saying is it possible to judge how much your cards are worth to other players? Because there are lots of names of cards going around of crazy races and you don't know what other players are drawing on their turns. Can you really judge the value of trades? To a degree. You're never going to know exactly what people are after, but a small snippet of what they're after is going to be obvious. But I don't think it's that deep that you're going to be able to work someone's complete handout. Yeah, it's where I find with five you kind of lose it a bit because it's too hard to remember what everyone's done. And this is part of being four players is the best because it's easier just to keep track of everything that's going on saying, oh, okay, you've been asking for those for a couple of turns. If I get one of those, let's see what I can milk you for, shall I? Is it ever possible to pull off a really outrageous move and trade with players who are paying attention? Or is it just usually too cagey and all about minor gains? I think towards the end it is. I think when you start, you're you're quite concerned about giving away something too cheaply. But towards the end, when people start getting desperate and they just need that one card to make up their set before the game ends, then absolutely, I think you can pull off some massive heists. Generally, no, but at the end, yes. It's tight, but I think it's a good type of tight. You don't want like masses of cards flowing around the table because then it would just be impossible to keep track off. Sean, Respublica 2230, you've told us it's best quick. Give us your quick final thoughts. So for me, this game is all about player buy-in. You either like trading games and you want to trade and you want to enjoy the experience, or you don't. If you can get together with four like-minded people who want to trade and want that player interaction and enjoying what the game presents which I suppose is every game but absolutely it's a good example of a trading game I enjoyed it as I said I don't want this game to go anywhere beyond 45 minutes at, at the utmost I don't really have any games that are just trading games so for me 
it, it would sit in my collection quite happily and I would bring it out for newbies, experienced gamers, just to pass the time. And as I said before, I think it's a travel game. I'd be happy to play it if anyone suggested it. This is too much of an episode of agreement. <laughs> we need to find some contentious games next time around. Oh, absolutely, let's do it. <laughs> do you enjoy trading? You'd enjoy this game. How much does that idea appeal to you? Because this is what it's all about. has to be played quickly. You must be engaged. Don't let anyone get away out in front because of the linear scoring. It will then become a procession to the end. But if you are looking for a group who basically are after a longer, interactive, filler-level game but will fill more time, Respublica 2230 exactly fits that niche it's good, I think, if people can play it a couple of times, get used to the in-game terms, get used to how the scoring works, get used to what things generally are worth to each other. And I can really see it be the kind of game that a family gets out and enjoys again and again and again, or, or you know, with a couple of friends that you play, exactly like Sean said, on a train. And everyone can just get into the flow of it and chatting and laughing and abusing each other. That's where it sits. A really a decent little retheme of a decent little game. Respublica 22. 30 AD. Okay, there's episode 55 in the bag. We really do hope you like the new format, and please do let us know if you did or didn't. We kept it quick and snappy, Sean, like we said. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well done, us. Uh, maybe there are some tweaks to be made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you very much for listening as ever it's very much appreciated thank you sean for being a wonderful sidekick <laughs> you're, you're welcome you're welcome batman <laughs> our next episode we usually tell you what's coming up but we have a couple of irons in the fire and it's not fully set in stone yet so we're gonna have a mystery episode 56 oh exciting i'm excited i'm intrigued myself because <laughs> you don't know either no. let's not make it sound like we're making this up as we go along shall we uh, I think we should that boat sailed a long time ago <laughs> Sean why don't you tell everyone where they can find us thank you very much everyone we'll catch you next time with some sort of an episode we can be found on 2d6.org where you can find a host of audio, visual and written gaming goodness. We're also very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. You can go to the Dice Tower Network for fantastic podcasts about gaming and, of course, ourselves. We are on Twitter. You can find us at Game Pit Podcast. We have a face count. Please go and like us. We also are contactable on our email address which is the game pit podcast at gmail.com so please do contact us if you have any questions about the show anything you want to appear any ideas for the show we're always on the lookout for good ideas we have a board game geek guild it's one of our favorite places and probably our most popular place for people coming in asking questions setting up topics and we love weighing in with our opinions even if it upsets everyone we are on Stitcher. We are also on iTunes, so please download us there. And thank you for listening. Music with Aaron. <laughs>